the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting tonight with the author and pastor, Dr. Eric Barjahuff. The new book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And while the, this particular book certainly walks you through some of the, the big ones out there, obviously anyone can be misquoted, misapplied. And before we get into some examples, Doctor, maybe you can walk us through some of the methodology that is necessary to really fully understand and apply a verse. It's easy to go and pick out a sentence or two and say, aha, this does what I want it to do. And if we did that, we could make the Bible say anything we wanted to in that regard. But, of course, that's not God's intent. Uh, talk to us a bit about uh, what contextualization means and how to go about, as Second uh, Timothy 2 suggests, rightly divide the word of truth. Well, the first thing I do, Craig, is I take an approach that looks at Scripture on the surface at face value. I kind of look at it and say, okay, what is being said here? What is being communicated? I, I kind of take a literal approach to Scripture in that way, unless it's obvious that the, the passage is speaking figuratively or metaphorically, like um, you know, going through the eye of a needle, so to speak. Um, but what I really do is look before and after the scripture and see what the paragraph is about, what the uh, whole particular chapter of, that this is found in is talking about, what are the themes that are emerging out of that. I look at the book as a whole, and this is where even a great study Bible would be of, of great help to, to anyone who wants to interpret scripture correctly. There's lots of wonderful information there about the author of the book, the original audience to which it was intended, some of the major theological themes that come out, maybe even some of the interpretive problems are even suggested there at the beginning of the introduction of each book. And and you can get a bigger picture of what's happening here and what are the political climate that the writing was in, what's the social customs that were a part of the day in which the uh, the uh, original hearers were a part of. So you can use these tools that you don't have to be a, a PhD or a scholar or, or even a pastor to be able to discern what the Bible's talking about as you study it here. But those things are very key and important. As you look at each particular passage of Scripture, you have to look at what comes behind and before and around it so that you get an idea of what's being discussed at the time that you come across that passage. And that probably, in and of itself, is one of the most easiest and yet most critical uh, tools that are available at our disposal. Because I know some people say, well, gee, I'm, I'm trying to consume or spend as much time in the Word as I can per day, but my goodness, I go out and get a, a study Bible. In fact, I've got one sitting here in the studio. I won't, I won't say what brand it is, but it is fashioned in such a manner, Eric, that the, the top half are the passages, and then the, the bottom half of each page in a, in, in a font type that's half the size of, of the scriptural print, it's all the footnotes. And boy, by the time you work through all this, my goodness, you know, I, it, it would take a month of Sundays just to absorb a verse or two on that basis. But if you simply help to put things in context by looking several verses 
behind particular passage that you're you're studying or looking at and following that can help a lot to contextualize things, can't it? Oh, absolutely, and that's that's how we should interpret the scripture rightly. And and it's it's no different than overhearing a conversation at the mall. You know, if you just hear one sentence that someone said over at the drinking fountain, you may not have the whole coast the whole conversation that had happened throughout the course of their walking through the stores or discussing things. The same is true. I mean, that's a crude example, but it's the same idea when you come to the Scripture. You've got to listen to the entire conversation. In that sense, I would suggest even reading through the entire Bible to kind of figure out what are the main themes of Scripture, you know, the creation, redemption that comes as a result of the fall and God's plan of choosing a people for himself and and then the promise of the Messiah. So taking even a whole Bible approach helps us get a big picture. There's one other thing that I would like to add to interpreting things rightly is also understanding what's called genre or a literary form. Uh, One of the things that I even write about in this book is understanding the nature of a proverb. That a proverb is not necessarily an absolute promise, for example, the train up a child in the way you should go passage, Um, It's not an absolute promise, but they're general principles based on experience and observation over a period of time. And so understanding the nature of a proverb will help you interpret what this proverb is saying and how you should properly apply it to your life. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, our visit is with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. The book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. Uh, I I almost hesitate, Eric, to head down this road because I know I'm really going to get telephone calls. (laughs) But in terms of particular translations, and we we may even need to delineate for some listeners uh, what we mean by a a translation... uh, Is there any one that is the most accurate? And I know folks have to deal with clarity on one hand, accuracy on another, and there seem to be so many versions of the Bible out there these days that uh, it's hard sometimes to know which one might be the best. Well, you are opening up a can of worms there, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> I think. I'll just say, just say it for the record here. I believe sure. in reading the Bible that, that Moses wrote and that Paul preached out of. That's and right. That's, well. And that's the King James. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it is, it is, let me just say this. There are many good translations of the Bible, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book as to why we have new translations that come out because language changes and context of how we use language changes and and so it's important for us to understand that it's a legitimate thing to write a new translation of scripture as as different hearers and different audiences i mean we're still wanting to be faithful to the original hebrew and the original greek and aramaic texts that the bible was written in but i think for for me one of my personal favorites is one that came out in 2001. Uh, the English Standard Version is one of the translations that I have found to be a good, essentially literal, word-for-word translation that I think is very, very excellent with regard to its faithfulness. I think there are many others, like the New American Standard. Um, I, I, I like I like many different translations. I like to read different translations to see how the translators have have worked through these texts, but I think one of the most accurate 
is that I'm using. Again, this is not to say that this is has to be this the 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 translation for everyone, but the one that I am using now almost regularly is the English Standard Version. Okay, all right, that's fair enough. And some of us, I mean, I, I having grown up with the King James. Sure, I did. I'm yeah. comfortable with it, and I'm I am comfortable enough in understanding uh, that version of the English language going back to the 1600s uh, that I don't get tripped up. I know some people do, and therefore maybe uh, not necessarily using the King James, particularly for for new believers or those who don't feel uh, comfortable with the King's English, uh, might be better off. Well, I, I grew up uh, memorizing first out of the King James, and then during my high school and college years, I used the older NIV, the 1984 version, and and it wasn't until recently that I switched over to the ESV. So, you know, everyone has different seasons of life where maybe one translation uh, it better suits them, and depending on their context, their culture, where they're at. But I think there are some translations that are absolutely better than others. There are some translations that I would say maybe have a little bit of a agenda with it, but mm-hmm. in the general sense, I, I think that um, the ones that I've first referred to there are pretty healthy. We're going to take a brief time out and come back with some examples as our conversation continues with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff of the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. And as we do so, you know, the, the Bible tells us that, for example, um, it rains on both the just and the unjust. How many of us during circumstances, if we have a friend or a family member who's going through particularly difficult times, whatever that might be, might might give them a word of encouragement, like from Romans 8.28, very popular scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so we, we, we will quote that scripture as a means of trying to comfort the person who's going through some difficult times. Don't worry, it's all going to work out. All things work together for good. Uh, Dr. Marjorie Hoff, what's wrong with the application of that under those circumstances? Well, we need to define what it means to say that it's working together for good. Um, because oftentimes we have inserted our own preconceived idea of what we think good should look like for our own life. And, of course, that involves, you know, financial wealth, prosperity, financial health, um, and even physical health as well. And so I think at times we need to understand that that verse it needs to be understood within its very next sentence in, in the Scripture, verse 29, not just Romans 8.28, but Romans 8.29, which says that for those God, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, which is the greatest good for us, is that we become more like Jesus Christ. So what that means then is that God is using great triumphs and even these tragedies that we go through in this fallen world, and he sovereignly weaves them together in a way whereby he can receive the glory in our life, where we become more like Jesus Christ in our character and in our actions. And that is truly the good that God intends for us. And so it's not a humanistically defined understanding of good. It must be a spiritually rich, robust, theologically sound definition of good 
that is pleasing and perfect to God in accordance with His will. And there's really two two portions of that scripture, too, aren't there? We we have the for those who love God and work together for good. So just to try to toss it out there to suggest that for anybody who's going for difficult times, don't worry, it's all going to work out. Which I think we we typically interpret to mean our way. That's not at all what that passage of scripture is saying, nor to whom it's being said. No, it's it's actually a promise for believers. So I want to make sure we understand that for those who who love God, those who are the called ones according to his purpose. And so that is a very important um factor that we need to understand when we interpret this verse is that this is not just for anybody. This is for God's people. But it's but it's for God's people who are living life on this earth as aliens and strangers in this world, knowing that the greatest good is yet to come. And that's the plan that God has for us in our eternal future with Him. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, just how much we look forward to those new glorified resurrected bodies that we'll have in the new heavens and the new earth as we all get older. We know that these, these, these things are wearing out. And, um, and it makes you long for what's to come. And so we should understand that the greatest good is a future promise, but some of the greatest good that we can experience now is not it to be seen in a materialistic, personal agenda way. It's more of what is going to glorify God, which is going to please Him, and what aligns me with His character so I become more like His Son. Now, that, that fundamental foundation throws a bit of a wrench into the monkey works uh, for John 14, 13, 14, which is so off-sided, particularly by those in the Word of Faith camp, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, ask for anything in my name. I, this I will do, if the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And it almost sends, tends to make God sound like this huge cosmic bellhop, in a sense. Yeah, I kind of call it like a genie in a bottle, yeah. where where yeah. we just kind of uh, have our agenda, have our laundry list, and we endorse it by putting um, praying in God's name at the end of it. Now, I I believe we need to understand what it means to pray in His name. It's a common phrase that He used quite a bit while He was here on Earth, and of course I trace some of that in the book. And but when the heart of it comes out, I think what we're talking about here is doing something and doing that which is in accordance with God's will, ultimately for His glory. So when we pray in His name, our main priority, our main motive must be, what is it that, Lord, that's going to glorify you the most? And and how can my prayer be shaped in such a way that your agenda and your priorities and your purposes far exceed mine? And so that is how we should begin. And in fact, there's a great book called Praying Backwards, written by Brian Chappelle, who says essentially that if we start talking to God with the idea that we're going to pray in His name, and that's how we go into the prayer, it will change the way we pray about the things that we pray about, because mm-hmm. ultimately we're going to be focused on God and His glory and what's pleasing and perfect to Him. Well, that other passage, you know, um, the the notion that uh, the Lord will give us the desires of our heart, but then God also defines for us where he says our heart needs to be focused. And so it's easy to say, well, I desire, you know, a brand new Cadillac in the driveway and, you know, season tickets to the 49ers, whatever the case might be. But then God talks about blessed is he whose mind is set upon the Lord, whose heart is set upon the Lord. So, if God says he's going to give you the desire of your heart, and your heart is set on him, now all of a sudden that that just changes the feeling of that scripture altogether now, doesn't it? It does. If you're delighting yourself in God, 
then guess who it is that is shaping the desires of your mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point, I think, is that our delight, our joy, our sense of being and purpose, our sense of identity is found about who we are in Christ, abiding in Christ, no matter what our circumstances are. And when that's our goal and that's our focus, that's our priority, it changes the way we view our world, we view our life and think about things so that when we do pray, we're praying according to His will, as First John 5 uh, talks about. And then when we ask according to His will and His name, then we'll receive that which we've asked to Him. Why? Because it's according to His perfect plan. Amen. There's one more I want to have you take a quick uh, swipe at, and, and it's one that I have memories of going back into the 1970s, uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a dwindling group, to be sure, uh, the big Jesus rallies, Jesus 79, Jesus 79. Uh, we had these rallies in the, the Candlestick Park in San Francisco, marches on Washington, D.C. And, and it seems, Eric, no matter where you went, you would hear Second Chronicles 7.14 cited. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And and you would get some of these personalities up on stage, quote that, and then talk about the evil people that need to get their act together and you sinners out there and people in Congress and so on and so forth. And I always thought, aren't we directing that particular passage at the wrong people? Instead of pointing out toward others, shouldn't we be pointing toward ourselves? Well, true. Uh, This was a message specifically in the Old Testament for God's people, Israel, So, first of all, it is a message primarily for God's people, but it was also for a particular nation, and that was the nation of Israel during the time of the reign of King Solomon, after he dedicated the temple. Um, There was a promise that God gave to him that if there were times where Israel would wander astray and, and, and go off the path, and, and of course, we know the history there, they did many a time, um, judgment would come. God would bring judgment upon them and correct them and train them and punish them and, and try to woo them back to living according to his perfect law. And, and as a result of their disobedience throughout their history, God would sometimes bring judgment. And that judgment would come in the form of even a physical judgment that would fall upon the very land of Israel itself. There was drought, there was pestilence, there was all kinds of locusts that eat their crops. And that was part of God's judgment. So here, God is promising Solomon that upon their repentance, he promised them that he would literally, physically heal that land that was decimated by all those locusts and droughts and famines and things like that. So it's a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. But what we tend to do is we kind of hijack it out of that context. We generalize it with regard to any idea of healing our land, and then apply it as a promise for spiritual revival for any nation where Christians reside, and that's not particularly the right application. Good idea, but wrong verse. We appreciate you spending some time tonight uh, to help uh, put some uh, new perspective or correct perspective, I might better say, uh, on the whole reading and studying and application of God's Word. The book, it's a page-turner, to be sure, an easy one to read, and one that I hope will, uh, will get you set in the right direction when it comes to properly studying and applying God's Word. The most misused verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood, newly published by Bethany House and available at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as we're told in Second 
Timothy 3 and 16. All scripture inspired by God, useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what to do, which is right. The key, though, is we have to properly interpret it and apply it. And uh, Eric Barger-Hoff has helped us do a tremendous job of that tonight. Thanks so much. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You ever wonder what your kids are learning in school? Oh, I don't necessarily mean things such as the history of the country and how to read and write and things of that sort. All important to be sure. But what are the other things that they're learning in school? You know what I mean, Mom and Dad? The other things? School's in session, and some things are taking place that perhaps are going to shock parents. It is incumbent, I think, on all of us to understand, to to help bridge the so-called generation gap and know what our kids are learning, how they're feeling, and ultimately how they're being influenced by both their peers and even by the educators. With some insights to help us all wake up to the realities of what kids are learning both in and outside of school, Andy Brainer joins us. He's a teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it, published by NAV Press. And Andy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. Parents frequently certainly will focus on things like, are you getting your homework done? What do your grades look like? Things of this sort. All important issues, to be sure. And yet it's what's not on the official curricula sometimes that we ought to most be worried about. Right. We... uh we, I spent uh, two years uh, researching this book uh, in the hallways of the high schools across America and and actually came up with some pretty alarming uh, <laughs> results. Uh, I found that uh, there's a there's a there's an undercurrent of sexuality happening in our in our high schools today that is akin to the sexual revolution of the 60s but it's all being done kind of under the radar and so I would encourage parents uh, just like you said there's a lot of things we can see that we expect kids to learn from school, but it's the relationships that they're having uh, in the hallways of the high school, when school's over, on, on weekends, that, that, we sh- that we should really be concerned about. All right, here's a fact check, uh, reaching out to some of the FAQ that parents ought to be asking of their teens, or at least aware of. Uh, let's begin with the first point that you address, and that is that there is significantly more sexual activity going on than most parents are aware of. In fact, according to a CDC study, Half of high school students have had sexual intercourse, and 14%, I mean, you know, it's not far from being one out of every five, have had relations, physical relations, with four or more partners, and we're talking about kids still in high school? Right. I was in the school, um, and I won't mention the name of the school, but I was—I have a chance to go into some of these schools and, and do assemblies and talk to students about, you know, faith and, and what they're really thinking about faith and what they're thinking about life. And 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 I would—I I commonly get a group of kids together just to ask about their dating relationships. And I and I just say, look, bottom line, you're not going to see me again in three days, so you know you can be honest with me, and I'm not going to go tell your parents what's going on. But tell me what's going on in the dating relationships in this high school and as we're sitting around the table uh one of the one of the guys hop, popped piped in and he he said uh andy here at our school it's just like we we just hook up with each other you know every day and so and, and hook up has a different meaning than maybe some parents might think that it is they have a they have a, a location that they'll go to and they'll literally engage in physical activity and 
And when it's over, it's just kind of like they just kind of went and played basketball in the backyard. They <clears throat> they come back to school and they say, you know, they, they give each other high fives and wasn't that fun last night? And, and then the next night they do the same thing over and again. And so each night we have teenagers that are out just hooking up with each other. And, 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 and even worse so, not only is any sense of impropriety gone or shame or guilt uh, apparently just completely uh, cast aside, but then isn't it so that at certain levels we see, Andy, the influence of so-called modern-day social media uh, that is helping exacerbate all of this? Because now, you know, not only are the kids are hooking up, and then they're bragging about it on Facebook or, or texting each other, if not with the gory details, even with photographs. Oh, with the gory details and photographs, Chris. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. In fact, I'll get I'll get emails from parents that that sneak on their kids' computer and they'll download the latest Skype conversation that they're having, and it would I mean it just makes you blush to think about the language that kids are using and the and the uh, just the explicitness of what's going on. So we've gone from being concerned about our kids potentially being exposed to pornography in the seedy parts of town to now actually creating the pornography. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Uh-huh. And most parents, I mean, as much as you talk to teens, you also talk to their parents. What's the reaction? I mean, you're speaking upwards of, of 80,000, 100,000 teens every year. You have a lot of impact and, and opportunity to talk to the parents. When you when you share some of these details, much as we are here this afternoon, what's the reaction? I find that, that there's a... There's a there's a lot of parents who would would come and they'd say, obviously they'd be in the camps and say, oh, that's not my kid. My kid would never do that. My kid would never be involved in that. Uh, and then you have some parents that that say, okay, I see the issue. I see what you're doing now. What do you, what can we do to encourage our kids? And especially in the Christian communities, when I go in and start talking about dating and relationships, um, there are some honest parents that go, hey, look. Um, we need help. Uh, we need we need folks that can bridge the gap between the teen relationship and the parent relationship. Help us coach our kids. And so you, you know you kind of get both sides of the spectrum. But but I tend to focus on the ones that are going. All right, we we get it. We know our kids are not perfect. We know our kids could be involved in this. Teach me how to coach my kid to have a successful relationship in high school. A lot of parents feel overwhelmed by this, a sense of perhaps being out of control because of the number of counter-influences to what they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, I would assume parenting today is as it was when I was a kid, that most parents want to be able to set up an atmosphere in the household that that establishes and then helps to encourage uh, certain standards and and a standard for living, a moral code, etc., etc. Mine happened to, to, to come out of the church, but, you know, somehow some sort of a, a decent code of behavior that parents are not only having to compete with with um, the counterculture that is out there that's running contrarian to what they're trying to teach their kids and values in the home or or in church and then on top of all of this i bet there's a huge frustration because just parents feel as if there's little they can do right but i think um it's easy sometimes for parents to just defer to all the other influences, but the research has shown us now when you ask kids about the most influential people in their life, in other words, what are the most, what are the most uh, prominent voices in your life today, the research that's come out say parents still hold the number one spot in developing a worldview of that teenager. 
and, and to most parents, I can say, you know, how many times have we been driving down the road with our kids in the back seat, and we say something, uh, you know, our kids are acting up or something, and we say, be quiet, stop touching each other, and all of a sudden, this memory of you being in that car kind of comes through, and you remember your mom or your dad saying those things, all to point to uh, the things that we learn about parenting often come from our parents. And so I often encourage parents to think about if you have the number one influence in your child's life, and secondly is friendships, peer relationships, and then third, the research comes out and says that the media holds the third position. So, so if you've still got the number one spot, then it's time for parents to start really parenting. It's, start, it's time for parents to really think about, you know, when is my kid on that computer and who are they talking to on that computer and who are they texting you know when they're at the dinner table and 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 start taking control and and be a parent in your house my goodness you're still mom and you're still dad and you have a responsibility to to rise up and raise your kids if you've just joined the conversation, Andy Branner with us tonight, teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on, and how to talk about it. We'll come back to more of the insights and our conversation tonight. If you want to join us with a comment or a question, join in. Toll-free number is 888-FOR-KFAX. That's 888-367-5329. A timeout. Back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. Andy Branner with me tonight. Guest expert on teens, author of a new book called An Expose on Teen Sex and Dating, What's Really Going On and How to Talk About It. You know, one of the other big uh, shockers here, I think, for a lot of parents is the amount of alcohol and drug abuse going on. Uh, there was a Department of Health and Human Services substance abuse report that came out that found that Order, over a quarter of teens, 25%, have engaged in uh, alcohol abuse under the age of 21, and 17% have gotten engaged in so-called binge drinking. There are folks listening to this program right now, Andy, who have never binged drank in their life, let alone doing it before the age of 18. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh, those are the old those are the old teenage adages, right? If we can only get them to stop drinking and stop smoking weed and stop having sex, then then everything will be fine. But but what we found is that those are just merely a veneer. All those issues, those classic teenage issues, are just uh, those are the, the surface issues of something deeper going on. And what we find those things to be true out here, we've got a little place called Kivu out in Colorado. We have over a thousand students every summer that come out here to do adventures in Colorado and, and and during that time we get a chance to really live life with students. And so what we find is that most students that are that are just trying to make their journey through high school are struggling with significance. And and it might not just be a teen issue. It could be I mean it's probably just all of us, right? We all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel significant. We all want to feel like we've got somebody that'll listen to us. And 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 the more that I find kids that are engaged in activities as you mentioned, the more I find somebody crying out going who in this world is going to value me? Mm. Who's going to be with me? And I, and I would say, and I say this every time I get in front of an audience, the number one issue in the teenage world today is not drinking, it's not sex, it's not drugs. The number one issue is loneliness. They're walking through life and they just feel all alone. 
You know, and the amazing thing to that message is that's kind of the description of the the human condition overall, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I think I find the more that I can, when I bend down to look a student in the eye, and I and I give them the value that they deserve as being human, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they think, oh, "Wow, somebody, somebody cares for me." And if they can do that at home, if a mom and a dad can do the parenting thing in a way that they really invest time in the things that teenagers like to do, and they really focus on valuing their student. Sure, there's disciplinary things. Surely, there's correction things. Surely, there are issues where we have to get in and mentor and coach. But when I place value in my teenager, he longs to be with me. He wants to be with people that find him valuable. And it goes back to the old age-old adage that oftentimes the best thing that you can do to sort of inoculate your kids against all that the world has to offer out there is just to spend some time with them. And if you use the excuse, oh, but I'm putting in 60-hour work weeks to earn enough money so we can take the big vacations and live in the bigger house, I'm doing it all for my kids. In the end, you're going to find out that uh, uh, the opposite effect of what you were hoping for comes to fruition. That's it. And I tell kids, I tell parents a lot, you know, when my kids got to the age where they could they could do Legos and they started stacking Legos, uh, they would sit in the living room for hours just stacking these things and making these different concoctions of Lego buildings and stuff. And I got to tell you, Craig, I hate Legos. I just don't think that way. I have no patience. I don't, I don't, I can't put the six block with the four block with the two block. But it was the times that I sat in the living room and said, you know what? Even though I don't like doing this, I know you love it. And to, to spend time with you, I'm going to do the thing that you like to do. Those were the relationships where, where relationships started being made. That's when they started seeing, hey, Dad really cares about us because he wants to spend time doing what we want to do. So I encourage parents all, all the time, you know, if you can find that thing, if it's video games, don't, don't just turn the, the Xbox off. Maybe sit down with your kid and say, hey, teach me how to do this. I'd love to do this with you. And get into their world. And once you get into their world, then these conversations about drinking and drugs and sex and relationships at school and academics and all the different things that they're involved in start just bubbling forth without you even really having to ask any real hard questions. You're not suggesting to try to be a peer or a friend. I mean, you can be a friend to your kids, but, you know, your, your kids will have plenty of friends in their lifetime. They're only going to have one mother and one father. Sure, sure, yeah. I think the friendship thing is, is, is a different term maybe than I want to invest my time where you find time. And, and I'm going to show value to you the way that you need to feel valued. And, and if we can do that, man, it's, I'm telling you, it changes the way parents and teenagers interact together. Let's grab a couple of calls. Here we're going to go to Lori in San Jose. Lori, come on in with your comment or question for my guest tonight, Andy Brenner. Hi. Um, I am... Uh have taught high school and different age group students and um, I found that uh, you know sex is a big problem as far as you know student student interactions becoming more casual but does your book address um, uh, you know faculty uh, becoming involved in promoting sexuality, like uh, what Governor Brown did uh, and the legislature did as far as um, SB, I think it's SB 48. 48, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and even the bigger equation there, Lori, is the fact that we've seen 
so much of almost substitute parenting going on in the classroom. And, and some of it, I think, to be fair, Andy, a few parents kind of fell on their swords, didn't do their job. And then some, I think, well-meaning but over-enthusiastic folks at the, the educational level said, well, look, if the parents are not going to teach their kids right from wrong and, and uh, sex education, we'll take care of that for them. The problem is, you know, fast forward 40 years after so-called sex education made its way into the classroom, now all of a sudden it's moved from, you know, just good health information to suddenly uh, promoting an agenda. Andy? Right. So the book, to, to speak to your question directly, Lori, the book does not address the public school's responsibility or not responsibility. So I'll speak just off the cuff in, in, in the research that I found. It speaks more to what Craig was talking about. We see administrators all over the country who are standing up saying we need sex education in the classroom, and we find parents that are trying to opt out of those things in, in a way that they say, hey, it's our responsibility, we're going to teach them. Well, let me just give you a little, uh, a little story. We had a guy that was sending his kid out to our place here in Colorado, and he said, are you guys going to teach sexuality out there? And I said, well, yeah, we have a whole course on dating and sexuality as it relates to the Christian worldview and what, what, is, it, what is God's intention for us in developing a relationship. Well, the man was well-intentioned on the other end of the phone, and he said, he said, well, I'd like my daughter to opt out of that class. And I said, well, that's great because we don't want to do anything that offends parents. We want to make sure we're locking arms with parents. We want to do what you want to do. I said, could you tell me a little bit, like, why? Why don't you want her in that class? And he said, well, we're going to... We're going to teach her those things at home, and we just want to reserve that conversation. To which I responded, incredible. That's incredible. That's a great idea. Thanks for being good parents. And then I said, if you don't mind, might I ask, how old is your daughter when she's coming out here? I'd just like to know, you know where she's going to fit in, where she's going to play, how we can identify her. He said, well, she's 15 years old. <laughs> to that I said... Brother, I don't mean to step on your toes, but that ship has already sailed. Yeah, you're, 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 you're going to have the conversation? Yeah, well, you should have been thinking about that probably 15, probably, you know, eight years ago. Our research shows that the average first sexual experience happens at 12 years old. Yep. There you go. And that, that, is, that is the stark reality that I think a lot of parents need to deal with. You know, even as we think about how we were parented, Andy, and wish to apply some of those lessons to how we in turn become parents and parent our own kids, we've got to realize this clock is moving faster than any of us realize. It's, it's fast, and that, that statistic of 12 years old means that 50% of them parents are younger than 12. And so we've got to, if we're going to stand up and take the, the mantle of teaching our kids about sexuality, then we've got to start those conversations, as awkward as they might seem, earlier and earlier. Some good insights. If they want to get copies of the book, Andy, it's available, I would imagine, through your website as well as Amazon.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazon.com, uh, AndyBrainer.com is my website, or you can just flip over to NavPress.com, uh, and you can go down to the teenage section, and it's highlighted there. All right. An expose on teen sex and dating. What's really going on and how to talk about it? Information again on Andy's website at Andy Brainer. A-N-D-Y-B-R-A-N-E-R.com. Andy, thanks for the time and the insight. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.